talking to a friend of mine the other day, and, and he asked me what I thought of meteorologists and with respect to their uh, theory on storms. And I just kind of straight up told them I think they're morons. I think meteorology is just a, um, it's a belief system. It's, it's based on superstition. It isn't based on anything rational. Um, it's based on a few cleverly worded phrases that have become conversational and that got repeated enough that people um, stopped, you know, they withheld their disbelief because, oh yeah, well that, that again, you know, like words like convection and capping and um, latent heat. These are all superstitious notions that if you actually trace down and try to find what underlies the actual cause and effect, you'll find it very contrived and convoluted. And you'll also find that they become extremely emotional about revealing the fact that it is just that, contrived and convoluted. And there's just nothing you can, um, you can do with them um, rationally. You, they won't actually make an arg argument other than to say that um, you know, this is the truth, because to them, that's what it is. It's just the truth. It's not something that needs to be thought about, or that, for all practical matters, as it applies to them, can be thought about, or will they? They just don't think about it, that's all. It's not a, you know, it's not like they're uh, trying to get away with anything or something like that. It's just that um, the part of the mind that's been turned on by the theory that currently is accepted is the part of the mind that we normally associate with religions. And people don't change their religions. And this, a, a meteorologist is essentially a cultural, a cultural entity. He's, he's part of a larger entity of belief. And they're not going to change their religion. So, you know, all you can, now, if, if you're like going, I'm looking for the truth here, right? All I can tell you is you can't go wrong by just avoiding what meteorologists say and looking at the physics itself. That won't hurt you. You won't, you won't miss anything. And don't think there aren't a lot of physical principles that are not applicable or that cannot be applied to uh, the atmosphere because there's a lot. There's, there's gas theory, there's thermodynamics, there's fluid dynamics. There's also, um, what do they call that? Complexity theory and chaos theory. And, and of course, there's just good old stuff like chemistry and, and physics, the laws of Newton. All of this stuff is much better than anything you're gonna find with a meteorologist, and also, what was I gonna say, you know, radiation and all that stuff. All of this is much better than anything you're gonna find uh, with a meteorologist, because their theory was formed in the 1830s, um, at a time of steam trains, at a time of um, inability to make precise measurements about just about anything. And they came up with these conversational notions convection, capping, latent heat of condensation, and 
These are all terms that have that they've attached causal meaning to. So the cause in their in their scenarios originates from the wellspring of this cause is something that's not really something you can even express physically, you know? Uh, you know, the notion of convection, you can kind of get a vague idea of what they're talking about there. But the thing is, there's three or four different interpretations of what that means, and every one of them uses a different one or a different combination thereof, and none of them agree, and it doesn't matter. So all the, they all just have a convoluted, vague understanding of all the stuff, of the words, the way they fit together. So, um, I... Um, don't let them affect my um, thought processes much at all, um, which isn't a problem since they have no clue as to what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, it's 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 perfectly. Um, but the only place it's confusing is for the public, because the public thinks they are real scientists. You know, they think that. Um, that if they make claims about the physics of storms, that they must know what they're talking about. And, you know, and it's a perfect combination. You have a, a populace that wants to believe, and you have these uh, meteorologists who deeply believe, and believe so deeply that wouldn't even imagine um, what they're saying not to be true. And then it's beyond that, it's just a conversation, and the conversation isn't really a, a, a scientific conversation, it's a marketing conversation in that it just familiarizes people with the same words so that if it comes up again, they can all have a mutual discussion about it, but it doesn't really address any of the real issues in the atmosphere like what is true, what is false, what is the cause, what is the effect, what is the, you know, what is going on with water? Um, why is its boiling point so much higher than anything in the atmosphere, yet everyone wants to believe it's gaseous, even though that's quite literally impossible? And why is it so invisible, you know? And um, why does heat have such a huge effect on it? You know, strangely, people don't realize lower pressure, the droplets get bigger. And that's a lot of the reason why um, there are clouds. They don't realize, though, that there's so much more moisture in, in their own environment than there is in the clouds. Um, that might be a little bit, um, we just don't realize, the, the, the moisture that's in our environment doesn't feel like moisture most of the time, it feels like air. Because that's what we think of air as being, because air almost always has some moisture in it. So there's no reason we would ever not think of it as being, you know. Um. <clears throat> so, um, you know, if you want to believe nonsense, you, you certainly can. Um, and if you go down the route with meteorologists, that's frankly your only choice because they don't have anything else. Um, now, my theory starts with realizing that underlying all of um, our current paradigms in science is this misunderstanding of water and a misunderstanding of its elasticity and how um, that elasticity allows it these very unusual properties when it comes to water, but it also shows us that these properties are affected by energy, but they don't cause energy internally in the same sense that 
combustion causes energy, right? What they really are good at is channeling and channeling and focusing flow. And here I'm specifically talking about the moist moisture droplets in the atmosphere. And um, the idea is very simple. There's a difference in viscosity between moist air and dry air. And anytime there's a difference in viscosity, and you get any kind of um, pressure, the one with lower viscosity is going to start to go faster. Okay. So that's just um, normal. Um, and one of the consequences of this is going to occur on the boundary between the moist air and the dry air, assuming it's a high quality boundary, but that I mean very flat, very long, and assuming there's an, enough wind speed, is you get a situation where the molecules there actually change their properties. Because their surface tension, which is um, unexpressed in their round state of a droplet becomes expressed when they become bombarded and start to spin and go into actually go into polymers for a while and then kind of um, do other things but the spinning is what is important because that's what maintains the whole idea that there's actually H2O there that has different properties and specifically is that it now has a higher degree of surface and therefore, it has a higher degree of surface tension. And if you, uh, and once you untangle what's really going on with H2O, the, even, the ability for it to even do all this stuff has to do with its elasticity. Its elasticity. Uh, and I'm talking about the elasticity that exists as a consequence of the same bond, the hydrogen bond, that is the bond that allows it to stay in the uh, liquid state at our uh, most normal temperatures. And it's how H2O molecules interact. That's where the confusion is in terms of how they affect each other's ability to affect the strength of each other's bonds. I know that sounded like a real complicated way of saying that, but what it essentially comes down to is there's an inverse relationship between connectedness and strength of connectedness such that the more interconnected H2O molecule are, molecules are to each other, the looser they are with each other. They're, the less there is force holding them together, <coughs> And situational factors like wind shear in the atmosphere, right, that change that cause um, the situational factors that neutralize that polarity to now no longer be in effect, and now the polarity becomes expressed. And that's why we have tornadoes. Or I should say that's why um, vortices in the atmosphere do exist. And by the way, they all originate from the jet stream, and they shoot into the jet stream. Their their whole life, except for maybe if they get cut off, in which case that doesn't really mean anything. But no, they're essentially draining. They're getting their low pressure energy from the jet stream, and they're funneling it, and they're funneling it back along these wind shear boundaries. And in so doing, they tend to grow down and across into moisture air. And that's why we have storms. That's why we have um, uplift and, you know, all the things that do happen in storms, including sometimes these vortices growing all the way to the ground, or as in the case with hurricanes, you know, in the first one, tornadoes, or as in the case with hurricanes, becoming intertwined in such a way that they create a huge uh, low pressure.
and um, that being, of course, a hurricane. And so when you understand how things actually work, when you understand that really there's a plumbing going on in the atmosphere, it's really just um, it's these vortices and they're kind of they're kind of doing something. They're kind of, you know, channeling off the low pressure entered the, the, the air going too fast up there on the jet stream and causing a swirl. And that swirl just starts to track back down along wind shear boundaries. Because that where where it does that is where it also adds energy, that increases the um, the 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 wind shear, the actual collision of H two of of air molecules with H two O molecules, that causes them to spin, and that's how the the plasma which emerges, which is the sheath of the tornado, that's how it starts to grow, and when it grows, it tends to grow back, and it and, and it has to. It has to both have a, a source of dry air to go up the tube, but it has to also have a source of moist air. And of course, that happens naturally since it's growing on a wind shear boundary in and of itself anyway. So, you know, that's what it is. It, um, and so you will, one of the predictive factors of tornadoes, this, you might find this interesting, one of the predictive factors of tornadoes or any kind of a, um, spinning uh, entity in the air and this is something I'll just say it, it's a little bit theoretical but I think you'll understand that it makes sense um, there's a reason why tornadoes take place on the east side of the Rocky Mountains and not so much on the west side and you know, and they both have the same air passing over them, right? The same, um, the same, uh, same weather, you know, it goes from west to east. And here's kind of the way to understand it. Think of the Sierras as like a kind of big rock in the river, but think of the Rockies as a really big sharp rock sticking out of a river. And just imagine the flow of water around both of these entities. Just as kind of a, um, a, a thought experiment, right? Just try to imagine those things. And I don't know if you've ever looked into a river, but what you'll see sometimes is that unlike the front of the rock where the surface of the water goes up a little bit and actually becomes very stable and even smooth, as as the as the water slows down as before it hits the rock, um, on the back side of the rock, you're going to see all kinds of turbulence. You're going to see um, boundary layers moving up and down very rapidly, and, and you're going to see exposing. Sometimes it'll expose the, the bottom of the river. You know, on if the river is small enough and it's moving fast enough, or it might be just a fast-moving stream or something like that. But you know, rocks in a stream will cause waves, will cause these very violent boundary layers on the leeward side, the side on the other side, you know, where the wind is going past after it goes over. And what really happens when you see tornado or tornadoes, 
And this also kind of explains why they sometimes happen in clusters. Um, is that boundary layers themselves are intersecting the ground. Does that make sense? So boundary layers between moist air and dry air, which um, may be at some altitude sometimes, but depending on flow conditions, can sometimes intersect the ground. And when they do, tornadoes emerge. Now, you might say, well, why... Um, why um, only then? Well, because that's the only place the vortices grow. They just, they have to have a boundary layer. It's like intrinsic to what they are. Now, what I think might happen, may be happening though, is that these vortices normally don't have a lot of leverage. You know what I mean? Up in the atmosphere, they're, they can pull some air in and stuff like that, but if there's no resistance on them, then there's no way to open up the tube to send more energy down the pipe from the jet stream. Does that make sense? It's only when there's at least some resistance that the, that the tube has enough leverage to open up enough to send more of that low pressure energy back from east to west, right? So, um, what I think happens is when these boundary layers hit the ground, these vortices, which otherwise would be, you know, no big deal, now suddenly find that they're, um, they have a tremendous amount of leverage because of the fact that they've sucked up against the ground. Does that make sense? In other words, once they suck up against the ground, their ability... Um, to create kind of a leverage, a leverage that that opens up the, the um, I don't know how else to explain it, you know, opens up the flow of the low pressure from the jet stream. And I think that's why tornadoes get so big sometimes is because that, um, that phenomenon of getting this leverage, uh, depending on other factors, of course, allows this thing to get sent a lot of, of low pressure energy from the jet stream. And we kind of have to remember, that's always where the low pressure energy comes from in a storm. Always. It's Or, or you know, maybe some tributary to, to it, depending on where you want to draw the line, right? There's always something else flowing in the atmosphere, and it's always going to be in some kind of a, either a vortice or it's going to be uh, a, a something created by a, a vortice, which is the jet stream itself, for example. In other words, it's going to be fast-moving air of some kind, and it's going to be moving, you know, in a stream. It's going to be moving faster than other than other air around it, and um, but that's that's why we get those tornadoes in um, in Tornado Alley is because they're going the the air is the river is going over a very large rock it's causing these waves these waves cause very uneven boundary layers the boundary layers hit the ground when the boundary layers hit the ground these otherwise relatively unimportant vortices now suddenly have a lot more leverage and 
just the nature of the atmosphere is that with all that leverage, it conspires to cause it to to uh, send a whole bunch of low pressure energy uh, down the length of the vortice and to, resulting in uh, the high energy that's sent to these locations and that caused those incredibly, you know, um, powerful and destructive uh, tornadoes. So another way to kind of um, to put a cap on this little theory is to try to draw attention to some a phenomenon called water spouts. Now, what are water spouts? Well, water spouts are essentially tornadoes, but they happen, um, you know, as the name suggests, they happen in the water. Now, <clears throat> water spouts are well known to be much tamer than tornadoes. I mean, it's it, it's undisputed. Now, there may be situations where a tornado will cross into water and and, um, and it will be fairly powerful for a while. And there are also situations where, um, I wonder if they're, I'm not sure about the vice versa on that, to tell you the truth. But whatever the case, um, according to, to my theory, the reason water spouts have so much less, um, they're so much smaller, so much tamer, it's because they never had that situation where they were up against the ground and the atmosphere had this ability to open up and send a whole bunch of low pressure. They never had that um, that leverage, that opportunity for leverage, because the ocean is, you know, you, you can't, it's, it's, you know, you can't get a grip on it, right? Uh, like water, you can't, you can't hold it, you can't grab it. And the same concept applies here. Um, the, the atmosphere was able to get a grip on a place that had a, a flat land surface, like they do in, uh, in, the, in the Midwest and in the Tornado Alley. And that's really um, what was, um, that's really what's, what's feeding a, a, a tornado, is it's the right combination of a rock in the stream, um, boundary layers hitting the ground, having therefore access to a, a lot more energy because now they have a lot more leverage once they've hit the ground. And, um, and that's why we have the violent tornadoes that we do have uh, here. And it's important to understand though, it's a consequence of the, of the plumbing hitting the ground. You know, that's what's actually happening in a tornado. Now, you know, meteorologists have this, this superstition, you know, and that superstition goes into what? Um, they'll say, oh, there's a convective storm, and they'll, and they'll talk about capping and stuff, and it's all really meaningless because they don't really even understand the right causal processes. They don't understand that the energy of storms is coming from the east, and it's coming in the form of low pressure. It's coming in the form of a vacuum. Um, a, you know, a spinning vacuum, a vortice. This is true for all storms all over the world, everywhere, um, even dust storms, you know. This is just what actually is happening in the atmosphere. Um, 
And of course, they're never going to get the, you know, this is so far beyond anything they're able to think. Anything I'm saying here, so far beyond anything they're able to think that it's incomprehensible, you know. They wouldn't even know where to begin to dispute something like I'm saying. Anyways, uh, this is James McGinn, Solving Tornadoes. It's a beautiful uh, Saturday, January, I think it's 29, 2022. And um, hope everyone else has a great day now. Bye.